Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. In this episode, we're turning back to some of your questions that you've been sending in. In particular, this week, we're going to focus on the questions to do with Europe, Brexit and Britain's history with uh, the European community. So, Helen, you've picked out one of the questions that you want to start this episode with. Yeah, this is a, a counterfactual question from SJM History. It's uh, going to be quite a hard one to uh, answer and certainly made us both think. Would Brexit have happened if... French President Charles de Gaulle hadn't vetoed Britain's entry to the European Economic Community. And just to remind people, this happened twice. De Gaulle vetoed in 1963, did the application made by the Macmillan government in 1961, and then again in November of 1967, or at least the autumn of 1967, after Harold Wilson's first government had applied to join the European Economic Community. So... Tom, you get us started. <laughs> I'll start with the difficult one. I think it's fascinating, this question, because there is a truth buried in it, obviously. So the first application by Macmillan, you know, there was reasonable grounds for Macmillan to think that it would be successful. You know, Britain is still, I think at that point, the wealthiest part of Europe, the most powerful country in Europe. Macmillan had a close relationship with Charles de Gaulle, a personal relationship. Um, Macmillan had been Churchill's man in North Africa, in Algiers, where he'd played a pivotal role alongside Jean Monnet in actually bringing Charles de Gaulle to power. Uh, originally, there'd been this battle uh, to, to, to emerge as the, as the leader of France in the Second World War, and, and Charles de Gaulle was Britain's man. This is the great irony. He was Churchill had backed him and Macmillan was sent to North Africa to ensure that he wasn't sidelined by the Americans. So for Charles de Gaulle to turn around and veto not just Britain, but Macmillan, the man who had helped him, was a psychological blow for the prime minister at the time and for the UK. It was a sort of reminder, I think, of the the, the mistake, perhaps, as, as, as certainly as the establishment came to see it, the mistake of not joining originally. And Macmillan, I don't think, recovered from this himself and, and resigned not that long after. So I think it is a really pivotal moment. I think if you go back as well, there are some other interesting sort of 
counterfactuals about this. So Enoch Powell was a member of that Macmillan government and didn't sort of kick up a fuss about the application. And he, he would have to defend himself in years to come about this because he changed his mind by 1967 and then obviously became really the leader in parliament of the Eurosceptic cause all the way up to the referendum in 75. Um, and I think his influence is enormous over the Eurosceptic cause as it grew and grew in the years after 75 up to 1990 and, and another pivotal moment, Mrs. Thatcher's removal. So I think there is something in this. But doesn't actually, this is going to push you because I think you're avoiding the question. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. Does it actually make a difference? I mean, it can be a complete blow to Macmillan, but is there like a path that turns out differently if actually de Gaulle doesn't do this? I think maybe because it was more of a total consensus at the time. I don't think it was... I mean, what was Labour's position? They had become opposed um, under Hugh Gates School's leadership. With his, I think it's in 1962, he gives his, this would be the end of a thousand years of history. Yeah, so I guess that that's to your point then, isn't it, Helen? That there is already an opposition based in logic, clarity. And, and you go back to the, the Labour Party's position from 51 and the Schumann Declaration up until 63, and they're opposed and they're, you know, at these opposed, Morrison's opposed, they're all opposed and they're opposed on, on sovereignty grounds as well, which would then obviously be taken up by people like Foote and Powell. So I guess that's the argument that it wouldn't have made a difference, that that would have expressed itself somehow. Um, but I don't know. I, I think it is, I think it is pivotal, uh, because we end up then sort of scrambling to get in and under a kind of sense of humiliation, rejected again in 67, and then eventually forced to go in the 70s when the economy then uh, immediately begins to sort of, uh, get into trouble. Whereas if they, we'd got in in 63, wouldn't we have got in with, um, the European economy and the British economy doing quite well? Well, I think the British economy in that point is is like a complicated story. The th thing to think about here is like, would the UK joining in 1963 have changed the the development path of the European community? And obviously that mm. is actually what de Gaulle feared. Yeah. I mean, the reason why he was vetoing at that time was because he thought that Britain would be a Trojan horse, to use his words, for American interests. Yeah. So actually, if you think of it as would it have been a, a closer alignment between NATO and the European economic community that would have left de Gaulle, France, a bit mm. marginalised. And remember that de Gaulle was going to take France out of the military command, or at least the joint military command of NATO like in 1966. Would that have meant that the... European economic community would have had a, a greater security orientation that would have been easier for the United Kingdom to play a leadership role in. I'm not sure. I mean, because you've got to then think about like, well, what were the, the West Germans who then would be the British ally thinking about it? Was their interest really in this developing in a security orientated way rather than an economic orientated way? I'm not so sure. And then if we go on to the second veto, at the core of that is... Uh, de Gaulle making remarks about the problems that Stirling would cause, the Stirling area, which was essentially a legacy of the empire and the Commonwealth, and saying that that wouldn't fit within a European currency um, block. Now, 
Obviously, when Britain joins after de Gaulle has left office in France in 1973, it does try and make the monetary side of it work in the sense that prior to joining the EC itself, then Heath had taken Britain into the snake, which was the exchange rate system of the yeah. European community at the time, but it had only lasted in there six weeks. So actually we'd left the snake before we'd even been in the European yeah. community. But you've talked about it before, the, the hypocritical kind of, that hypocritical argument from de Gaulle, because they were in their own kind of currency. Yeah, but the, the, I think know, the, the, the question is, is you would have to say is if this was going to make a difference, it would have to be in the case that inside the European community, let's say from 1968, that Britain could have shaped monetary direction of travel. And at least it's worth thinking about, but I'm not so clear that it's obviously so that it could have done. And then I think there's a question which you've already got at, which is, is well, at what point would the constitutional question, yeah. not just the sovereignty, but the how are the British people democratically consenting to this? Yeah, I think that is have, a big question. Would have question. come into play. And then that's going to come back into question with the treaties from the constitutional treaty onwards. So then we'd have to think, to imagine, I think, for that problem, in the for Blair's problem, essentially, to go away in that respect, we'd have to imagine that Britain would have been sufficiently able to influence the European Union's constitutional development such that that kind of issue didn't arise. And I think that's where you kind of it, it kind of falls the argument, the counterfactual really like falls away because Britain would have been joining in 1967 a union, and it was in some even though it's still called the European Economic Community that was based on the idea of constitutional law across yeah. the community. This is the very point from the beginning. Yeah, the and it certainly there. is by the point when the European Court of Justice has said that European Economic Community law is above national. Yeah, law. that issues. I mean, you can try and imagine that a British government could deal with that question in a different way, but it doesn't take the problem away. No, although I, I think the, the point that you made, we should turn to the, the next question soon, but the, the point that you made, Helen, about how would the European community have changed with Britain in from an earlier point is really interesting because I think Macmillan at the beginning is tearing his hair out, saying the the Europe that de Gaulle wants at the time, because de Gaulle, remember, is sort of raging against the Europe, the supranational Europe that Monet had built and sort of not really being very happy in that. And the Europe that he wanted to create was something that Britain also wanted. It's just that he didn't want Britain in the Europe. Oh, well, I think though no, that this is the tension though, because what de Gaulle wants though is the, in his vision of a European community, and no, I left out the word economic there, he yeah. wants it effectively to act as a security confederation. Yeah. Um, Which would, with the same policy that would last all the way to today. Minus, yeah. In that sense, it would replace NATO in yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. security terms. And the European economic community, as it actually was, was developing, putting a customs union and the common agricultural policy like at the centre of it. So economic questions, that's a good part of what de Gaulle didn't like. Yeah. And so although I think that would have agreed with the British on the fact that security was more important in some sense than the economic questions, which obviously wasn't the West German position, they would have just completely disagreed about what to do about the security question because Macmillan's government and Wilson's government were not going to be anti-NATO. Yeah. We, we surely will come back to de Gaulle at some point in in the future. I mean, we were, we've, we've touched on him a few times. Let's go to the next question from Kate Snowden. What would have happened if Theresa May had managed to get her Brexit deal through Parliament? This is in 2018, 19, was, was it 19, 19, the first meaningful vote? 
So what do you think? This again is a great question. I like thinking about really complicated con- counter um, fractals. When I start to think about this, I think the crucial question in thinking the counterfactual through is whose votes would be have been used? Yes. Whose yeah. votes that weren't for the meaning those on Theresa's side over those succession of meaningful votes would actually have flipped? Now, if we think of it as the, the Democratic Unionists changing their position, yeah. or enough of them anyway, and then some more conservatives who were not so basically more people like Boris Johnson who voted the final time round and had been opposed earlier, mm-hmm. then I think that's a, the politics that follow from that is a different answer than if it had been Labour votes mm-hmm. that were yeah. used to get through. So those Labour MPs in Leave constituencies, imagine that they'd flipped. Because then that has like profound consequences, I think, for the Labour Party and for the Conservative Party, because then you wonder like how does Theresa May's government function as a minority conservative government dependent upon Labour votes for its biggest legislative act. I think that government doesn't last like very long. It's not difficult to imagine that you have the kind of thing that happened in the European Parliament elections to the Conservatives from Nigel um, Farage. If you then had, though, sort of shift in the Conservative Party and the DUP, I think that is a different kind of that is a different kind of scenario. It still would have, I think, been very divisive within the uh, Conservative Party. Whether it would have brought that Theresa May's government to an end quite so quickly as either the scenario, first scenario I outlined or the actual course of events, I'm not so sure. Yeah, I mean, we come back to this point, don't we? That you know, roads not taken, a road is not taken for for good reasons. Um, Dominic Sandbrook said said that when he came in to talk to us about the nineteen seventies. I think there's obviously a, a lot of truth in that when you think about this moment in time. I mean, let's take say the DUP voting with the Conservative Party and the Conservative Party then feeling confident enough that it wasn't some kind of betrayal and they of Brexit and they could vote with it. So that the Steve Baker and the, what, what they called the Spartans at the time. So if the DUP had come over and then the Spartans had come. Or some we, of them. I guess it's difficult some of to them. imagine any scenario in which the hardcore of them shifted. That's right. But then they did for Boris Johnson's deal, which draws a line down the Irish Sea keeps EU law and a role for the European Court of Justice in Northern Ireland in a part of the UK. And now you have Steve Baker as Northern Ireland minister saying to to the DUP, they have to suck it up and choose from available futures, I think was his, from his quote. So I couldn't have imagined that not very long but ago. But I think it doesn't that reflect the fact that the, the ERG and the Spartans were using Northern Ireland as much as an argument as anybody else was using Northern Ireland. Absolutely, in this, yeah. that What they actually wanted was as as they, in their minds, as free a possible Brexit for Britain. And I'm using Britain now deliberately and not Absolutely. the United Kingdom. I think I think that's exactly right. But let's say then that the DUP are somehow persuaded that, that they should agree to Theresa May's deal because they could foresee what was going to happen mm. with Boris Johnson and Steve Baker and those lot. Well, I still think there's going to be repercussions in Northern Ireland because there's a bit of a misnomer, I think, about Theresa May's original deal that it had no border down the Irish Sea. It did have a border 
down the Irish Sea. It was not a customs border. So I think it kept the whole of the UK in the customs union with uh, the EU, which again, look, let's play this forward. That's going to cause issues long in the, in the long run. I mean, not even ab- just the long run, I think. Yeah, the ability to sign trade deals was a core part of the of the Brexit kind of manifesto, wasn't it? The Brexit idea that you could go and sign trade trade deals, and it's still being used as the as one of the arguments that it's been a success. So let's put that aside. But the DUP would still have faced the reality of two different laws applying on either mm-hmm. side of the border. They would have had to have faced divergence between Britain and Northern Ireland remaining tied to the Republic in perpetuity. Northern Ireland is, you know, its politics are febrile already, and the DUP is fears losing votes to its right flank, not to its left flank. So there's every chance that the DUP would have lost votes to the TUV, the traditional unionist voice, which, you know, may have even replaced the DUP in time. And so you're back to the same kind of problems in Northern Ireland of uh, the end of power sharing and, and all of that. So that's a reason why perhaps that wouldn't have happened with the DUP. And on the Labour side, I think that is quite interesting. What would have happened if the Labour Party had decided to try and split the Tory party by doing what Keir Starmer has done now with Northern Ireland and Rishi Sunak and just saying, I will give you the votes. I will be the sort of, in quotes, the kind of grown up. I will lend you them. We'll pass this deal for the good of the You've country. You've got to remember though, this is Corbyn. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is not, I mean, this is where I think that the, the scenario of like how that works is really difficult to mm-hmm. imagine is is that if you think of it from like Corbyn's point of view, regardless of whatever his views were on Brexit, he wasn't going to act to prop up a conservative government. Absolutely. If you think about it from Starmer's point of view, his need to assert his as strong as possible remain credentials to try to win the Labour leadership mm-hmm. yep. in the wake of what he imagined to be Corbyn's, you know, short-term eventual exit yeah. or short-term exit is pretty overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So the, and you could see that, I think, and that was, I think, part of the Theresa May's, the final sort of days really of Theresa May, where everything drained away from her was when she spent all that time trying to get the legislation through on Labour votes. Remember those negotiations yes. that that she had. And it's in that period or in the context of that anyway, that the Conservatives end up with 9% or not even quite 9 was 8.9% in the European Parliament yep. elections. So from that point of view, I think the idea that Theresa May could have done this on the late with Labour votes was basically existential suicide for the Conservative Party. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that the Tory party would have split and either have been taken over effectively by the, the Brexit party or just replaced by the Brexit, I mean, I, I, you can't I, think of anything. I think in really in British political history where the Conservative Party is as much on the precipice, I think, as it was in those period between the European Parliament election and Boris Johnson becoming parliamentary leader. Which yeah. is why I think that actually so many people who had who did have reservations about Boris Johnson were just willing to say. Well, this has got to be worse than not existing yeah. in a, as an electoral force. Exactly, he's the he's the only one we can we can turn to. We have to turn to him. He's our sort of last hope. Um, you do you want to go with the next one? Yeah. So the well, actually, we're not going to answer the next one. We're just going to actually we we because the next question is 
uh, will a second term, this is from Tom Nutt, will a second term Starmer government try to rejoin the single market? And we're not going to answer it because we're actually going to discuss this question. Starmer's relationship to the Brexit question now uh, in, a, in an episode in a few weeks time. So I'm going to turn to Oliver Tilly's question for the last one for today. Do you think that having left the EU, there is a greater urgency and focus on the UK's specific challenges and opportunities and in the fullness of time, positive things could come from that? So again, great question. I think this is one of the Brexit hopes. And I think there's, in, in a sense, I feel like there's more of a logic to it than there is a kind of reality yet anyway. My sense of of Whitehall at the moment is just that it's sort of overwhelmed. And so this kind of hope that there would be greater urgency on UK specific challenges and opportunities has not yet come about just because they can't, they don't have the capacity, it seems, you know, there's just too much going on. So you if you think about, say, the environment department, where there isn't a sort of obvious one of the most obvious areas where the UK could do something really quite different outside of the common agricultural policy to do something really quite radically different. That hasn't come about. I just think because in large part, there's just so much going on in the day-to-day of government that they can't, they haven't got to it. They don't, they don't know how to get to these things. I think there is also a mentality thing that, you know, is hard to quantify that is people still don't really want to urge from the european union i think there is still a mentality that we we don't do that yet i certainly think that's the case in whitehall and that's not like a conspiratorial kind of accusation against the blob there are often sort of good reasons for that but you, you can see it can't you on things like you know i was talking to somebody a friend about this the other day like gdpr you, this was one of the things apparently was going to go quite quickly and you wouldn't have to press those, you know, do you accept the cookies on your, when you open your every web page? But we haven't even turned to that as a state to, to sort of, to move to a different regime. So I don't know whether, whether we've built the capacity. I mean, this is one of Cameron's arguments. This is one of Cameron's arguments back in, during the referendum. I think when you got him revealing what he really felt, because he was kind of this mild Eurosceptic. I think he was a bit more than mild. You think he was a proper Eurosceptic? I think somewhere somewhere in him there was a a quite deep inner Eurosceptic. Yeah, you you can see that in some of the early writings. But what he, I remember him saying something along the lines of, look, this is just 10 years of concentrating on something else that we could spend concentrating on stuff that kind of really matters. I think an element of that has borne out in that we are, with the system and there are lots of flaws with the British state at the moment. It doesn't seem capable of doing very much at all. You know, if you just think about all of the crises that we face, it always seems to involve bringing the army in at some last minute to deal with floods. Or do you even remember the Olympics when the army was brought in to bail out the that private company who was supposed to be doing all the security? I, I remember speaking to somebody about this who said that that is like a warning sign that the state isn't functioning properly if you constantly have to rely on the army. So I I am a bit worried about the state's capacity to make uh, policy, to make make this kind of work, to make it more Britain specific. Um, But I think it's hopefully that is something that over time that could come about. I I think if you look at the way in which the the Johnson government after the 2019 general election 
what its mindset was. It was in this space. That's what leveling up. Yeah, exactly. Was about. It was a saying. Look, we've got a national problem here. Brexit is an opportunity mm-hmm. to deal with it. Now, you could argue that it wasn't necessary mm-hmm. for Brexit to happen to deal with leveling up. It wasn't. No. But the point is that the politics of Brexit created the politics mm-hmm. of leveling up. But if you then think of it as like what happened is, first of all, the pandemic comes into this. Literally, it starts in China within pretty much a month mm-hmm. of the 2019 general election. But the UK state in this respect, geopolitically, is already reeling um, from what we were talking about in our episode last week of the fact that the China strategy yes. was in crisis. Yep. It's dealing with the, the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. It's dealing with net zero legislation, which had been passed in those dying days of the Theresa May administration. So actually the urgency is coming from all fronts at the same time. Mm-hmm. So regardless, in a way, of the capacity of the UK state to deal with some quite practical questions of the kind that you're describing, including the emergency of floods, which had happened at the beginning of that general election, mm-hmm. so I recall, general uh, yes, election yeah. campaign, so I um, recall. It's also just got to deal with a world that's just changing mm-hmm. very, very rapidly. And in case of the pandemic, a shock that that clearly was deeply ill-prepared for and that had geopolitical ramifications that ran into the fact that the china strategy had effectively collapsed even though as we talked about there's lots of it there is continuity in there the mm-hmm. grand strategy yeah had nonetheless collapsed yeah yeah absolutely I, I i think that in a way there's like a shock to the brexit could provide and all of those things that you've described on top of it it's definitely not just brexit but that shock to the system, that realization that the state can't cope with some quite basic challenges. Let's take borders. We've had to erect a border at Dover with the European Union to check goods coming into the UK. Now, this is like a basic part of statecraft. The European Union created border controls and checks on goods coming into, into Europe quite quickly and effectively. We have still yet to do that. We haven't built the border. We haven't got the capacity to do it. So I think, I think that is a, what I would hope is that it kind of shocks us into an understanding of our weaknesses and we build the capacity over time and then we can do this. That's the kind of positive uh, vision. I guess the alternative, Helen, is though that you kind of give up, that the state gives up on that and just says, we can't do it. And so let's go to somewhere where we don't have to do checks and we don't have to do this. Um, I mean, I think that that's not an option because the urgency of the whole set of predicaments is is like um, overwhelming. And so the prevailing sense of crisis, I think, will kind of force a reaction yeah. in the end. And that isn't a party political point in any way, because I think that how the reaction comes has got as much to do in a way with the state itself as to who's providing the political um, leadership to it. It might be some time in coming, but clearly the a set of inadequacies of the UK state have been revealed. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to finish there. There was a question uh, from Jonathan Hewitt. Would you consider doing an episode on Obama? We just wanted to finish by saying yes. Uh, we definitely will do an episode on Obama at some point in the future. We'll also turn to questions that have been sent in specifically about US, uh, you know, the state of the United States and the state of American power in the world. So do tune in for that and we'll see you next week. Thanks again. These Times is produced by Ewan Daughtry. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.